1: Life, what a day, Saturday, June 26, 2021. And you know what that means? The end of the first full year of podcasting. 52 shows in a row. We had two specials. We didn't put an episode number on them. That was our troubadour, Dave Gunders. We put together his songs for the first half of the year, the second half of the year, and the man is prolific, as he proves again today. But episode 50, our year-end wrap-up show, is amazing because of Morgan Carroll. I've known this attorney for a long time, and I'm very proud of her. She is bright, passionate, and motivated. In the age of Trump— She has the historic position of being Colorado Democratic Party chairwoman, and she's done it for a while now, and the Dems are kicking ass, and you will find out why. Gosh, we talk about all sorts of things. There's no need for another guest, but Dave Gunders and I talk a lot about life, a year completed, how many more songs he has. Yes, next week, God willing, it will be the start of our second year and we will set the tone with a song called Set the Tone. But this week, he has a song called Tard and Feathered that comes with a warning. Once you hear it, you will start singing. I guarantee it. That's toward the end of the show. Our year-end wrap-up show. Thanks for this year. Look forward to the next. Look forward to this interview with Morgan Carroll. It is a doozy in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, we both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now? And we'll keep going on future talks. What about number one, behave yourself? What does that mean to you?
0: Uh, I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, Whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board.
1: They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information.
0: Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is Michael And again, that's Michael BaileylawLC.com. You can get a hold of me that way too.
1: If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound. And then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you.
2: Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
1: Gosh, it's a pleasure to welcome back old friends to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Morgan Carroll is somebody who I watched Grow up in the law business, me and lots of others. She was a superstar when I got to CTLA. She's a lot younger than me. But after my prosecutorial career of 16 years, I needed to find something to do for a living. And I became a Colorado trial lawyer. And there was Morgan Carroll and her beautiful mother. And they were two of the most friendly people to me at the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association. I will never forget that. Morgan Carroll, Senator Carroll, Chairwoman Carroll, however you like your title, welcome back to Craig's Lawyers Lounge.
3: Hey, Craig, thank you so much. It's great to connect. Um, I'm, I'm happy we have a chance to, to talk today.
1: Well, do you remember it the way I do? Because let's face it, CTLA is a pretty liberal organization, and I was a prosecutor, and that is sort of a conservative job in a way, although it's always being redefined, but um, why were you so nice to a stranger like me? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Greg, you have always been a good lawyer. And I think what brings people together at the trial lawyers is people in pursuit of justice and just pursuing justice is something that clearly you were working on. And people forget prosecutors aren't just about locking everybody up forever. It's discretion. It's about making sure that we aren't racially biased in how we do it. It's about knowing when not to pursue. Um, so I do think that that role has been redefined because justice means making sure we have the right response to the right crime. And also you've been a mentor. Um, you mentioned for your listeners may not know, but, um, My mom and I were a mother-daughter law firm. I was a new lawyer coming out. And there's a lot you do not learn in law school when you come right out of law school. Really, to be a good lawyer, it's um, being willing to learn everything you can. And you were always a really great mentor for me. And my dad was a member of the Trial Lawyers Association, too. And basically, for our whole family, as disparaged as attorneys get, we chose law based on doing what we felt was right to help regular people who had been wronged. It's that simple and uh, always very proud to be there. And you always had a lot to offer there. I do Uh, remember that. I was a baby lawyer back then.
1: Right. I I think you're like 16 years behind me and I spent 16 years in the DA's office. So we kind of came out as babies together. It was fantastic. You are The proud daughter of an amazing family. I come from Denver lawyers. You come from Colorado lawyers. Tell everybody, brag on your dad and mom and take it back further (laughs) uh, because I'm interested in Colorado history and you are a historical figure now. Uh,
3: Thank you. I guess I I am maybe a historical relic, but um, we do have amazing, I learned so much. And I do want to take a second just to talk a bit about my parents. My dad was one of the first original founders of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, and he had been in the state legislature for 10 years. But in addition to that, his passion led him to a lot of international travel. My father learned 13 different languages and was working in Scandinavia on translating runes, which was part of his project. He was an author on a search for Quetzalcoatl doing original translations from Nahuatl and Spanish and, and, um, you know, also working with, uh, old Norse languages on the early voyages into the Americas, uh, before Columbus. So he had a, a big worldview and a voracious intellectual appetite and was interested in everyone everywhere. And he was just an out of the box person. His version of trial law was not a volume practice. He um, did some unique cases on challenging uh, the death penalty. He actually got um, government immunity overturned by at, at the Supreme Court level before the legislature came back and, and reinstated that. And his advocacy meant that even when um, defending someone on immigration deportation An example was he went right back to the original Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo when Colorado was still part of Mexico and said Congress had to expressly abrogate that otherwise free access for folks back and forth um, was guaranteed in a treaty that was binding law. And everyone thought it was absurd Uh, and he won it. And then Congress had to go back and expressly abrogate it. And I'm just saying because it was out of the box. My dad was an out of the box thinker and a scholar and an advocate for, uh, he worked in the civil rights movement uh, d- doing defense work with uh, the Black Panthers, was early on affordable housing, um, multi-generational workers comp. My dad's heart was always with 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 workers. And my mom um, added a whole other interesting dimension. She was basically, I think one of two women in her 1966 class in law school. It was not a lot of women in there. And she was just um, a trailblazing pioneer. And we became mother-daughter partners. But she decided uh, that she wanted to get involved in Boulder Action for Soviet Jewelry. So before pre-Parastrika, pre-Glasnost, the former Soviet Union was like not a the current Russia isn't a great place right now either, but it was not a safe place for Jewish people to be open in who they were. And she took me on several trips. My mom learned Russian. Um, we went over to help get Jewish refuseniks out of the former Soviet Union. And what does it say about my mom that she thought it was important that an 11-year-old go see um, Egypt, the Soviet Union, Um, she supported my decision to go live on a kibbutz when I was 16 in Israel. So causes, you know, varied a little bit, but I was raised in a house where you cannot sit on the sidelines. I saw my parents look every day at what they were hearing and who they met. And if there was a wrong and it needed to be righted. You know, doing something was a given, and sitting on the sidelines was not an option. And what it meant is, I was raised in such an incredible environment of meaning. Everything mattered. Human beings mattered, and uh, they exposed me to the world and people with so many different life experiences than mine. And I will never be able to thank them both enough for what they gave me. So you're right. They are very interesting people. Both of them trial lawyers. They themselves were uh, law partners for a while, took on some really interesting legal cases. And um, and uh, even my dad's dad, Earl Carroll, uh, was a lawyer on the Western Slope. Uh, my grandparents lived on the Western Slope. So I'm actually uh, four, four generations of Carrolls in this state, and three of them wound up practicing law
1: that they believed in in this state. Oh, my gosh. Let's say their names. John Carroll, Rebecca Bradley, your father, your mother. I knew they were accomplished, but I think I had shortchanged them. And I understand why (laughs) you are so terrific. And let me tell you that I'm old enough to remember that what united uh, the Jewish people in America was Israel under threat, but Soviet Jewry. You know what's important by what the speech is on Kol Nidre night, Yom Kippur. And we would all talk about the poor Jews in the Soviet Union, and we would be asked to contribute money. But your mom got way more involved in that. Let's just go back to that. Uh, What an influential moment. He traveled. And yeah, remember, uh, the leader of that movement was a Democrat, Henry Scoop Jackson, and that made a lot of us proud to be Democrats. Talk about that aspect.
3: That's right. Um, look, we care about human rights, and I think that's important. And, um, you know, it, 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 we the isolationism of, like, we don't really care what's going on with other people. Well, look, um, both... As someone who's Jewish and as somebody who's a Democrat, we have a responsibility to pay attention to people who are being persecuted anywhere around the world. And I, American Jews and supporters came together through this country and, in my opinion, really helped change. Uh, and I think even contributed uh, to the downfall of the former Soviet Union. And in the meantime, helped a lot of people get out. And when I went with my mom, Uh, to the former Soviet Union. She insisted that I learn how to read, but we were meeting with families covertly. It was not risk-free and uh, it sounds like right out of a movie, but clearly the KGB at that point in time were tailing people. Uh, They were very concerned about American involvement to try and help the Soviet Jews at the time. And um, my mom would go back several other times and there's families in Colorado today because of my mom and people like her who now have raised their kids here. They've had their bar bat mitzvahs here, and now we have multi generation of Americans and Coloradans because of people like my mom and other people active like in Boulder Action for Soviet Jewry, but around the country. And it's really neat to meet the human beings and see how successful some of these families have been able to take root and have the freedom to practice
1: their religion. Right. Or just to exist. It's an interesting thing being Jewish. You know, it's full of varieties. You think, wow, people named Carol and Bradley getting involved. I'd expect Silverman, (laughs) Schwartz, and Cohen. Tell us about uh, your family background and uh, the Jewish part of it.
3: Yeah, so um, I, like, By background, I'm predominantly Irish, which you would guess with red hair and with the last name Carol, but um, two things. Um, During the Holocaust, uh, you know, when anti-Semitism was so rampant, um, Ireland was actually one of the safe places for people to go in the Jewish community. And there's a small Irish Jewish museum in Ireland and um, Golda Meir herself had a connection and it's been sort of interesting. You don't really think about Israel and Ireland as being connected. But in my case, I was raised um, by one atheist parent, one agnostic parent, and I chose Judaism. I started studying different religions when I was about eight and from eight to 12. I just loved the um, I'm going to call it the Socratic method of the Talmud. But the, the questioning that is welcomed, there was a really good fit for me and I. Um, it just everything was a really good fit for me. So I decided to go through an Orthodox conversion so that I could make Aliyah at some point to Israel. And I had my bat mitzvah and then I um, helped tutor uh, and train other people for their bat mitzvah and taught Hebrew for six years in Boulder. So I am a Jew by choice.
1: Oh, my God. And- that is so interesting and fascinating to me. Being raised Jewish, you know, not a choice, but I know a couple people like you and I'm just wondering how your parents reacted.
3: Very supportive. So my mom would also convert later and had an adult bat mitzvah. And so we shared a lot of that together, including five trips to Israel. It's why she was so supportive of my choice to go live on a kibbutz for a while. Um, And my dad was very supportive. Um, You know, he was skeptical of all religion. But he was very respectful of my decision and I never got any guff for it. And he would understand, like when we were doing Shabbat dinner or high holidays, you know, that that was truest to who we were and even his dad was excited, actually, to find out that uh, we were Jewish. And and so, like, our whole family was really very supportive about
1: it. All right, let's tell some secrets because there are so many Jewish (laughs) lawyers and you've hit on it, which is even the word Israel is to wrestle with God. We like to argue. It's kind of a natural (laughs) for a Jewish person. You talked about the Talmud. We don't necessarily just say, okay, this is the way it is, just accept it. We discuss it. We talk about it. And that's kind of what's missing in the world right now, civilized back and forth. So I'm just fascinated by your story. But was, you said you got bat mitzvahed. You said you went to Russia to try to free Soviet Jews when you were 11. You think that contributed? You must have been going through it all at the same time?
3: Yeah, I think that background, and I, I, I even think um, what inspired me in part, and this is um, part of my mom's story too, but she had a childhood friend whose mom was a survivor of the Holocaust. And she was a young girl at the time, and she was literally hanging on to life and death by a thread. And that night she was cold and she was hungry, and a kitten had crawled up next to her that night. And in her recollection, that kept her alive overnight with the will to live, and they were liberated the next day. Ah. And my mom's best friend was Jack. Uh, and his, this was he, my, the reason it came out is my mom had brought a kitten in her pocket, which was weird. And the kitten jumped out, and it triggered like this whole other memory and at the time we weren't really talking about the Holocaust that openly here and I will say it is a religious imperative truly to never be a bystander to like when we it's all about lessons of the Holocaust what happens when we otherize others when we uh, demonize people when we're indifferent when we stand by when harm is happening to other people when we're intolerant, when we can't handle differences, however you want to look at those lessons, there is a direct line to that to where we are today. Um, Not being able to openly discuss, to debate, not have a respectful space where we recognize the humanity in everybody um, is a very stark warning sign. For I think all of us who have studied history, it's not the best version of ourselves. We've always had differences of opinions. No one has ever agreed fully on politics. But how we treat each other, you know, we need to be finding those shared values of how we treat one another so that we can have a space to talk about where, where we disagree. And politics has become extraordinarily toxic and debate and discussion uh, well, even facts are, are on the line. And it's really getting difficult to find a shared language uh, so we can move society forward.
1: Wow. You've hit on so many hot-button topics. And you bring up the Holocaust, which has dominated my life, even though I was born well afterwards. But my parents were teenagers when that happened, and that made them frightened for their children, even in America. And now you think, well, we're in America. We can never have authoritarianism or totalitarianism. And now we see that we could. Everything has become clear now. And whereas I thought we had moved to uh, a society where racism was terrible, people understood that uh, you got to judge people on the content of their character, It's been revealed that uh, a third of our population are not past that, and we can see exactly how the Holocaust happened in Western Christian Europe within our parents' lifetime. Hasn't that been revealed, or did you always know that? For me,
3: it was like, oh my gosh. I used to think history and progress were more linear that if you look at the original sins of slavery or what we had done with indigenous people or the lack of basic equality for women or LGBT people or or the Holocaust, they figure there's atrocities of history. We learn from them and we don't repeat them and we we make these mistakes. And while I don't know if I would have said there was zero chance, I think what was interesting to see the move to authoritarianism with Trump and his supporters was again, Trump alone couldn't have done anything unless there was a critical mass of people willing to follow him and to this day, even if it means following him off the cliff for a final destruction of the Republican party, um, even if it means putting a cult-like version on a strange brand of Republicanism over country, over patriotism, over a constitution, like, even basic voting rights that should have been a shared American principle and a democratic republic are now like it's not just one deranged Trump who's at war with our institutions of voting, but now he has cult followers that are attacking elections, both in terms of whether they're even legitimate, but then Going to the state legislatures where Republicans have power and going out of their way to make sure that human beings with a constitutional right to vote can't or have a really hard time exercising that vote. Being being forged now as a basic Republican tenet of not wanting everyone to vote. That's shameful. That is shameful. That is un-American. That 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 should not be like a Democratic versus a Republican thing. That should be a universal American principle. And it's sad that, like, apparently, like the real lesson we're saying, again, that we can move here is rules don't apply to me. Suddenly a different set of rules are there. A lack of accountability people who will literally look the other way almost no matter what he's saying or doing, and even as people are dying in a pandemic, and as Trump himself almost died in a pandemic, turning around the next day and still promoting uh, perspectives on a health pandemic that will get people killed. That is beyond irresponsible and that happens only when you're authoritarian enough where suddenly there's one human being that cannot and will not be questioned. That is very scary.
1: Right. And where are the guardrails? The Republican Party has been overwhelmed. That's one guardrail that has collapsed. But I always thought that another guardrail is our legal system and lawyers. To me, attorneys have a special responsibility in this case, And I've seen too many attorneys in the public eye who have failed and I'm just mortified. That scares the crap out of me. What about you?
3: Yeah, it does me too. Like I saw, there was a group called Lawyers for Good Government and I saw at the same time some really great challenges happening from the ACLU that were an important line on some overreaches. But the Republicans in Congress weren't a check and balance. The um, withholding of Obama's court appointments, you know, Trump led to more politicization of the judicial branch, which meant that in many places that was not as available as a check and balance and a backstop. And, you know, for the profession of law, it's a really interesting dividing line because for people who see the career of law as a path to making money, or it is just a job, like you can practice lots of law, but I'm where you are. I think there is a heightened moral responsibility to take your legal education and do it for good. And, you know, that saying, Craig, back, I think even in Shakespeare through literature, you know, when they were talking about first you kill all the lawyers, that wasn't just the lawyer bashing of the chambers of commerce or the right. That was because that Those were the people trained with the tools that could advocate to protect regular people. And if you want an authoritarian regime, you need lawyers to stand down or not be present. And in a moment like we're in, we're not out of the woods yet. Every lawyer, no matter how they are getting paid, in my view, has a responsibility to use that degree to make sure that justice happens, that people's rights are protected, and people who may not have time or money or the wherewithal to to speak up for themselves, like we have to be challenging. Um, We're a part of it, but Congress was also part of it and they rolled over and the courts were part of it and we need to like reclaim an independent judiciary in this process. And then frankly, the electorate, Um, the media was targeted as a source of hate by Trump because that's another group of people who could expose what he was doing. And every time they exposed happening, he would just call it fake news. And there were too many Americans not willing to believe what was being reported by news sources or was too easy to jump on a bandwagon. And the media has always been a critical fourth estate, never been perfect, but by invalidating the press, by attacking attorneys, by packing the courts, and by basically extortion and threats of members of Congress through primaries, all of our systems of checks and balances were stress-tested, cracked, some broken, and some of them held the wall, but it was too close for comfort. And you and I and a whole lot of other people saw how close we came to losing this country.
1: Right. And still are in danger. We are yeah, still in danger. And when Trump yeah. came out early in his presidency with that bullshit, and this podcast, I can say it when I'm worked up, the media is the enemy of the people. I came on my radio show and I said, what the hell is this? We're part of the media. But I didn't get that kind of support from my colleagues and elements of the media, especially talk radio, which has become Trump radio. Trump radio. It's unbelievable how they put up with it, and then being a Jewish person, I don't like Holocaust metaphors generally, but I could see it right away when he started, if I lose, the election is rigged, and he kept that going. I call it the capital B, big capital L lie, because I could see where that was going to go and how it could undermine the democracy that we love and we cherish, at least I thought we did. This big lie is unbelievable, and this is the kind of crap that needs to be batted down in a court of law. And just one more thought triggered by you. When McConnell got away with blocking uh, justices, including Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court, then Joe Biden, understandably— put a nice Jewish guy in as attorney general, sort of his payback. But I'm not sure we need a nice Jewish guy. Maybe we need a more aggressive Jewish guy, because I'm disappointed in Merrick Garland going after the clear breaches of law. I want him to be aggressive. There's your jump ball run with it, Morgan Carroll.
3: Yeah, right now, the attorneys general at the state and at the federal level are critical. Um, because that is another one of those last lines we need, And if we're ever going to see accountability happen to the prior administration, sure, it would have been nice to see more while he was there. But we know the presidential immunity shielded him temporarily. And it's going to be some combination of private attorneys, local district attorneys. And yes, the U.S. Attorney's Office and our attorney general actually deciding that the law matters more than the cult of personality and we have one outstanding question out there is trump above the law
0: i and think it is going to be
3: right. up to right like we need an aggressive attorney general we need, we need someone to just simply enforce the law that's there because you and i know if you if we did even a tenth of the behavior. That was done in the last administration, we would be in prison. And there are Black and Brown people all over this country who have done less, who are serving more time.
1: Correct. That brings us to January 6th. I think the evidence is there. Civil lawsuit for sure. And criminal charges. I want to get to the bottom of what happened at the Willard Hotel. I talk on my podcast how this big lie has a lot of tributaries right out of Colorado, this Joe Altman, who said he infiltrated an Antifa call, and Eric Coomer on Dominion said Donald Trump will never win. And then Donald Trump picked up on that, attacked Dominion. They needed a boogeyman because Dominion was in many states. It's just plain as the nose on our faces, Morgan. I think I could prove it in a court of law, is it possible that members of our profession, trial lawyers, will help unravel this onion such that everybody will have to see what's really going on?
3: I, I think it is possible, and I actually think it's, it's likely. And it will be lawyers with groups like Towards Justice or individual folks or people working with the ACLU or in private practice. And it may not even be the majority. But I think there is so much there, no matter how someone feels about Trump, the behavior, if we think law means anything, because here's the ultimate lawlessness question. If you can um, flout the law as overtly as Trump did, as repeatedly as he did, then what does the law mean at all? And I think there will be lawyers that like, I think justice may be delayed, but I do not think it will be denied. I think there is too much facts. I think there is too much of a pattern of complete disregard for the law. There's too much evidence out there. And the hubris of this person is he's lived his whole life, um, basically breaching contracts, uh, violating women, um, you know doing criminal enterprises because he was leveraged in debt and, you know, anything that he thought to save his hide and rules just never applied. And that wasn't a one-off that was a life pattern. And sooner or later, um, it will be trial lawyers uh, who just basically make the case to the public and a jury. And, um, I believe that he will eventually be held accountable for his actual behavior, just like anybody else. Would
1: be. Right. But he won't go down easy. This guy is the king of obstruction and he will call his cult members into the street. And I heard a lawyer who I used to respect say, wow, if they prosecute Trump on tax charges or some made up crap, then people should go to the street and it will be justified. And I thought, oh, my gosh. What an irresponsible thing for an attorney to say.
3: Right. Like, and I mean, would that attorney have said the same thing about taking down Al Capone? I mean, this is how organized crime in this country, you know, we can't uh, we can't normalize organized crime through the office of the White House or any other public office. And I know people are cynical, but norms matter. We deserve better. It's not just how politics is done. Not all politicians are like this. And as a society, if we, the voters think, oh yeah, that's normal, everybody does it. Then we are partly to blame for renorming the unthinkable. We have to insist on better. No, it's not normal and it is not okay for any public official of any party to be using public office for private gain or to abuse power. That is fundamental to this nation and like that should be a place of common ground where we just insist that that's unacceptable in any position of power in this country.
1: Right. And you forgot about cheating on his taxes for decades. And with regard to Al Capone, who would be on Capone's side? A member of his organization, maybe his lawyers, right? right? And so it's just remarkable, the sellout so many people have done for Donald Trump. And it's frightening. I I don't know how many of them appreciate it. Let's, before we leave the subject of Holocaust comparisons, whether they're right or wrong. This is the thing that aggravates the hell out of me. That's when people on talk radio imply that people like you are the real Nazis, that uh, you are the woke people who are going to impose speech codes, this and that. And I, I want to shout at the radio especially, fake historians who don't understand Yes, danger can come from the far left, but the Nazis were creatures of the far right. They were the conservatives. And don't let the fact that some poor English translation of National Socialists comes about. Does it bother you like it bothers me?
3: Well, yeah. And I think it's both intellectually very misunderstood and I think it's very politically convenient. But the basic difference is that what the left is doing is humanizing people and what the right is doing is dehumanizing people and any system of oppression, whatever name you give it, you've never really seen a system of oppression based on humanization. You've only seen it come up when people can be cogs or dehumanized in some fundamental way. I don't know if I would have always said this, like the Democratic party has always been a closer fit to my values. Um, Even in elected office, I didn't always vote party line on different things. Like I value independent thinking along the way. But um, at the end of the day, oppression comes from dehumanizing. And when we take each party at its core, what the left is doing is humanizing people who have been marginalized to try to make sure that it's all of us, whether you have a disability, whether it's race, women, whether it's LGBTQ, trans, like if we humanize everybody, nobody loses. And the modern right and the modern Republican party has a very zero sum game. That if we respect women, uh, men are gonna lose. That if we have LGBTQ equality, that heterosexual people are somehow losing something. That if black lives matter, White lives might not. And that kind of artificial binary threat approach, like if other people are valued, that somehow they're devalued is a really basic philosophical difference between the parties. And so, right, when they try to paint us as Nazis, the fundamental reason is we're just not that interested in having or abusing power. And if you care about human beings and respect them, you could never ever do a single part of what that or any other regime, Holocaust, totalitarian, authoritarianism, like you have to start and end with regard for your fellow human beings. And Democrats make mistakes. But as long as that is the compass, they will always be doing a better job representing people in government because they care and they're trying. And right now, the current Republican Party does not seem to care at all about people. And they're not even trying to solve anything. They, it's, it's just obstruction. And that is not a philosophy. That is a, that is, that is just, I'm not sure why you're running for office. If there's no problem you're trying to solve, or if there's no good you're trying to accomplish. Um, obstruction is not uh, a platform. Like it doesn't do anything for anyone.
1: You've always been a Democrat. I've always been independent. I even ran as an independent candidate for Denver DA. But are we welcome? Because to me right now, the only real issue politically, morally, societally is, are you with the Trump cult or are you against them? And I'm against him 100%. And I see you and the Colorado Democrat Party, the National Democratic Party, you are right on this issue. Are we welcome to join your cause? How do you feel about people like me or even further, the Lincoln Project? People who say we've got to suspend all other disagreements. We've got a pressing issue. let's unite
3: i We feel very welcoming and that it's necessary um, because Look, part of it's pragmatic, right? The majority of voters in Colorado, and I think it's becoming this way nationally, are unaffiliated voters. But that, at the end of the day, that's just a label. And so I think the way we think about it is we want all people of good conscience who care about this country and people to work together Governing well has always required coalitions. We learn from each other. We might not all agree on everything, but if we're basically all coming from a place of goodwill, trying to do right by each other in the country, we can get so much done. We need unaffiliateds, we welcome, we don't expect everyone to, if the, the Democratic Party has never ever had a lockstep on anything. So I think of it in terms of like, it's coalition building to do something done to try and make, you know, to make things better. And we have had former Republicans that are now volunteering with us who have, some have become Democrats, some have just disaffiliated. And we've always had a lot of progressive unaffiliated, that just don't want to necessarily inherit a label. And, It's superficial to stop at labels. So you got it. You are welcome (laughs) in the Democratic Party. Uh, Unaffiliated are welcome to join us, to volunteer with us. Look, Republicans, like in the Lincoln Project, I will always respect Republicans of principle. And that may sound strange coming from a Democratic chair, but there are Republican people I know, like, and respect. We have had Republican elected officials that I know, like, and respect, but they are getting crowded out of the current Republican Party. There is not room for them in the Republican Party, and there is room. We have a big tent, so all people of conscience are welcome with us, and you know, it's not healthy to have a one-party system. I actually want to see a return to some kind of healthy Republican Party for the sake of our country.
1: But I don't see it happening. They elected Christy Burton Brown to be the head of the Colorado Republicans. She's the sponsor of the Personhood Initiative. They go on Trump radio saying, oh, we want to reach out to independents. Really? I think it's going pretty great for people in Colorado. We are more advance. We don't buy this Trump crap, and you do a fantastic job. But what happens nationally, and you hear this from a lot of Jewish people, what about Ilhan Omar? Well, fortunately, she's not from Colorado. She's from Minnesota. But isn't it your job to keep uh, people on the far left out of the mainstream of the Democratic Party? I mean, at least insofar as representative government?
3: You know, I actually see my job as expansive. Like we have a whole spectrum of Democrats. And I think that like when I'm asked about like left, center, right of the party, I take it issue by issue because Mm -hmm. the left, right, center is also kind of an arbitrary label. Um, And I think it's a person by person basis. Like there's nobody that someone is going to agree with their votes hundred percent of the time. What I care about is that when we're recruiting and training candidates, that they work hard, that they're honest and that they try, that they listen, you know, that they have good constituent services, that they do things like town hall meetings, that they really try to represent their constituents And I don't expect 100% uh, agreement on anything because that's the slippery slope the Republicans have gone down to. There are things we fight for. I think there are things that are core for us. But the um, litmus tests of 100% conformity to someplace on a political spectrum, whether it's center, left, or right, is how we... um, trivialize and make superficial the debate in this country. So I think it's actually healthy to have different representatives from different states with different backgrounds, because collectively I think they all have something uh, different to share. What I care most about is that we elect people who are critical thinkers, who can stand up to a well-funded professional paid lobby corps that does not always have the average American at heart. I want someone who's gonna read vote their conscience, do homework. And if they land in different places, I'm okay with that.
1: Nice. I can see how you've done such a great job as head of the Colorado Democratic Party. Uh, You guys dominate and you don't throw out crappy candidates like the other side does or wacko candidates. That critical thinking seems like people have to get past that Morgan Carroll test. You were in the legislature for a long time, um, what was it like back then and how is it different now? Do, do you feel like you had Republicans you could talk to and now that they really don't?
3: I, I did. Um, And people think, well, like so, because I've always been known as a, a, a more progressive populist ki- person, candidate, legislator when I was there, but on civil liberties, um, I could work with and This will probably hurt him politically. But, you know, people like Kevin Lumberg, there were people that were in the legislature that were serious principled conservatives. But we both believed in the Fourth Amendment um, that you should have probable cause and a warrant before you can invade people's privacy or take their belongings. Like, we believed that. And so um, you could coalition build issue by issue with many, not all, of the Republicans uh, when I first came in. And I was in from 2005 um, through uh, 2016. And little by little, every single year, it has become harder for Republicans to work with Democrats because they're penalized. Their leadership is penalized. If their leadership works with Democrats, they face primaries. And then the right wing social media and Trump radio, as you call it, attack Republicans who even think about basically working with Democrats. So the, the new crop of Republican elected officials um, are more Trumpian, are more follow the party line, are less willing to ask questions or to work with people across the aisle. And what I've seen that is really different, Craig, over the last couple of years is like instead of just long vigorous debates on the floor, there's just obstruction for the sake of obstruction. Like, oh, that's a long bill. We'll have it read at length. I'm gonna come up here and I'm just gonna read it slowly because I can waste time. And wasting time just for the sake of wasting time didn't used to be a norm. ad hominem personal attacks against colleagues, against witnesses, Um, the norms of what were proud traditions of an institution to have some kind of statespersonship are eroding right now. And and I do tie a direct line between that and Trump because any of the norms of statespersonship were thrown out the window and we're seeing like many Trumps show up that think it's okay to be fact-free and personally disparaging to anyone and everything, and then just to break process just for the sake of making things stop. And that's not government. That sh- that's just not a way to lead.
1: Right. And geographically, half power state is being led by Lauren Boebert. And she is terrible. She's a troll. She <laughs> won't work with anybody and yet, my former colleagues on Trump Radio—they venerate her. Uh, it, it's frightening to me. And then contrast that with who the Democrats offer. Let's—you don't have to talk about Bobert. You can, but as a lawyer, as the head of the Colorado Democratic Party, watching those two Colorado trial lawyers—three, Diana get, my old classmate at Colorado College. Joe Goose and before that, Jason Crow, that made me proud to know those people and to consider them fellow Colorado lawyers. How about you?
3: Well, those folks, obviously, our whole delegation um, really does make me proud. And we saw that on display during the impeachment trials, just the skill uh, that our team has, principled preparation, hard work, um, Bobert is an embarrassment. She's an embarrassment to the Western Slope. She uh she no one's answers her, like the constituents can't get help. They, you know, whether they're calling, whether they're trying to show up. And you could not find a less intellectually curious person. She has like one, two, or three-word sound bites. And, you know, as long as she's taking a picture of herself with firearm and saying one-word stuff like freedom you know, the, the right is going to venerate her as if she's, you know, doing or standing for something. But what we know at the end of the day is that she's not representing her district. She's not listening to her constituents. And they want, the Western slope may be a bit conservative, cred, but they want people to work together to get things done. It's true that in the modern time, I think people may be drawn to um, like a more sensational candidate who like she has figured out how to grab a lot of headlines. Um but there are a lot of Republicans on the Western slope that are mortified. And in a you know as someone who is coming from four generations of Colorado, uh, a lot of rural places in this state came from a place of like you just know your neighbors (laughs) like as your neighbors and how you treat each other and how you speak to each other. And while there's a Trump edge that that's creeping in. Um, Unaffiliated, normal Republicans and Democrats are just needing help. You know, they need jobs, they need broadband, they need infrastructure, they need cell coverage, they need someone who's going to fight for their water rights. They need to make sure that the Colorado way of life on the Western slope is protected for something that is as special as it is. And she's missing in action. She's busy at Trump fundraisers, you know, grabbing headlines and taking selfies and posing and, and tweeting, but has delivered exactly nothing for her constituents. And so I think the way to approach Bobert is just on her total inefficacy and inability to get anything done. That poor district right now basically has no representation.
1: And we will find out how her district gets with uh, redrawn. Uh, that's the big news, the eighth CD. But before we leave, Bobert, is it possible? I've heard from some people on the Western Slope, it's a lost cause. Nobody can beat Bobert out here. I, I'm going to ask you, you are a fighter, Morgan Carroll. You're not going to surrender that much of Colorado.
3: Is there a hope? Is there a way to win? Yeah, there is a way to win. So, I mean, for folks who have the current third district is 29 counties. And there are, if anybody ever needed real representation, it's there. They need good alternatives. And I think a lot of people were maybe caught by surprise by the fact that she beat Tipton in the primary. And I don't think the third will reflexively vote for Democrat. But what the third will do is for somebody who's from the community, who knows the community, who they know will represent their interests well in D.C., the third is also willing to, uh, if it's the right candidate who's right on the issues, I also think um, it's not a given that people just vote party line. And relationships matter. Relationships matter. So if someone has good relationships with a lot of people in these counties, we see it at the local level. Craig in the same places, even where they're called red, they'll vote for a Democratic county commissioner. They'll vote for a Democratic school board candidate because they know them. And labels, um, the Western Slope, like a lot of folks there don't want to be labeled. And so someone who can like cross party lines and really address regional challenges can will do there. I have hope we are committed to defeating Lauren Boebert and making sure she is a one term mistake only for the state.
1: I'm down with that. It's an embarrassment. Lauren Boebert in Colorado. But let's talk about The statewide leadership in Colorado, Jared Polis, Phil Weiser, Jenna Griswold, how are they doing?
3: Well, they're doing really well. Um, Jared is getting really high marks for Colorado. Colorado's handling of COVID has been quite extraordinary. And in partnership with the state legislature, we did a Colorado stimulus package this year that really was looking at small business loans and grants, you know, addressing affordable housing. Um, We partnered well because, you know, the Dems are delivering solutions instead of just trying to obstruct stuff. So we're very lucky in the state. And that has meant that uh, Governor Polis in partnership with our democratically led legislature has been able to deliver just historic accomplishments that are making a difference in the state. If you look at Colorado compared to many other states. We're doing better economically. Our vaccination rates are better. Our, our businesses are doing better. Our unemployment rate is doing better. We're just doing better overall under their leadership. And Phil, I can just say for anybody who didn't know before why an attorney general matters, look no further than Phil Weiser. He has been truly advocating for Colorado, taking on some big and tough challenges, That, um, you know, even four years ago, I would get people that are like, Well, you know, like they don't really know what the AG does. Um, I think anybody who's paying attention now sees that Phil has been a rock star. I don't think we could possibly have had a better attorney general. And while elections became quite, uh, you know, a subject of attack, uh, Jenna Griswold became a national figure, um, really calling out BS when people were making up little lies under the big lie about elections. Like Colorado really has the gold standard. Our democratic legislatures helped get us voting rights and laws that matter. And Jenna used her discretion as secretary of state to do things like make sure that there were more drop-off locations. So in a pandemic, people didn't have to wait in line. Um, So our team, It's not just that they're Democrats, it's that they've done a good job for the state. And I think the state will reelect them.
1: I went to uh, a CLE where the chiefs of staff of Alec Garnett, Jared Polis, and the Senate uh, Republicans were there summing up the legislative session. And the shocker for most of us was, whoa, we thought we were going to be in a budget crisis, but somehow we are flush with money and we have to figure out what to do with it. How did that happen, Morgan Carroll? Carol?
3: (laughs) Well, um, over a couple different sessions, Democrats have, one, closed some uh, tax loopholes that audits show were uh, just hundreds of millions of dollars that were benefiting like one or two or a few large corporations or individuals. And so there was a data-driven, like, What is our current tax policy doing? Is it serving ordinary people? Are we basically subsidizing a very few small people at the top? And those are huge political fights. So thing one, over a couple of years, Democrats have led tax reform to actually take what limited, Tabor limited revenue we have and do things like address the business personal property tax, uh, affordable housing with those funds. We also budgeted conservatively, like when COVID started. And so we took a more cautious estimate. And then when we started getting people back to work and back to business sooner, because we were paying attention to science in a pandemic, uh, it meant that the revenue coming in, we had kind of pessimistic you know, projections to be careful. But the reality meant that our economy and our health were prospering better because of how it was handled. And that has meant more money has been available. We still have a Tabor cap, but the federal stimulus has been real. Uh, Getting people the unemployment checks, we did have people unemployed during COVID, helped people um, not only continue to live, but put some stream of money buying necessities and other things going forward and um, the reserve is another thing uh, that was carefully protected so that in a hard time like this there's more we could do to help out the state so i would say that the local stimulus package has been possible because of good planning because of good decisions because of things that help the local economy and because we were willing to take on tax justice and relook at, you know, is this helping people equally? Is this disproportionately helping just a few people at the top? And those were big fights.
1: This week, uh, like too many weeks, we've been touched by gun violence in Colorado. And talk about your intractable issues. I've been around a long time. I was a prosecutor during the summer of violence. Even before that, Alan Berg got killed for being Jewish by a guy with a a machine gun, in effect, an assault weapon. Denver banned assault weapons in the late 80s, and that's held through the Colorado Supreme Court. But now gun crime is rampant. Too many people have automatic assault weapons, well, semi-automatic assault weapons that can be converted. What can be done about guns, Morgan Carroll? Isn't it at a tipping point to... The extent people are afraid to go out to Arbatid, to a King supers, to to do anything. That's ruinous for society. Where are we at and what can we do about it?
3: Well, it's a good and a big question. Um, one of the things that the legislature did this session was to uh, expand the option for local control, like we saw out of the Boulder massacre that happened Um after a court had stricken down their ability to have like greater protections at, at, uh, in Boulder than maybe statewide. So we're, uh, the legislature restored back more local control to decide like what the right gun policies and laws should be for each community and also tackled uh, safe storage and went back into um, how to handle domestic violence with firearms laws, I, I will say this, and this might surprise you a little bit. I don't think laws alone are going to fix this, but they can't change without the right laws. So having common sense measures that are really geared around responsible gun ownership at the end of the day, that's everyone is fine with responsible gun ownership, but not having laws that deal with irresponsible or criminally minded folks that are just Using this as too easy or too convenient to kill people and take people's lives in action, there, you know, we're we're past due at at the federal level. Um, So we saw some really good moves happen here. I also think that there's two other pieces to this. I agree that behavioral and mental health is part of this, somewhere underneath someone's inability to. regulate their emotion, um, toxic anger, uh, normalizing violence against other people instead of actually figuring out how to you know, disagree civilly. And this is Morgan Carroll's preference, but I would like to see coping skills, basic human coping skills taught at a much earlier age, because whether it's domestic violence, whether it's gun violence, whether it's sexual assault, whether it's, um, Physical or other kinds of abuse at the core of this is often people who don't know how to handle stress. And then it comes out like in child abuse or it comes out in other harmful ways that have lasting impacts for our society. So, yeah, I want to see background checks. I want to have responsible training on how to, you know, properly be a responsible gun owner that's there. Uh, I want to see. People using safe storage. I do support people's right to self defense. Um, And the cultural thing that is also happening, which is just so little regard for fellow human beings and the copycats of like needing or wanting attention because of carnage that can be uh, sowed against others and the easy ability to do it, um, it is unparalleled in almost any other part of the world. I mean, this isn't normal. We do see and experience gun violence at rates that we just don't find in almost any other country. And to just passively accept that that is the way it is, is not trying. It's not trying. Uh, you really can honor people's rights who are responsible gun owners and really target your policies towards people who aren't. And no one ever said the Second Amendment said like violent, irresponsible, criminally behaving people have a right to own and use firearms to murder other people. That is not in the Constitution. So it's loaded. But um, I think we made a really good uh, effort in this state. We have detected and prevented Um, purchase and transfer of a lot of assault weapons through background checks of people um, who have been convicted of uh, felonies. But I also want to be realistic that that can't guarantee it goes to zero. It's a start. And when we can't even have an honest conversation in society to even admit we have a problem, it's really hard to move forward.
1: Right. And I'd like you to move forward with an assault weapon ban. But I understand in Colorado, that's problematic. It would be better if Joe Biden could do it at a national level. But he has uh, thin margins to work with as well. You've got Lauren Boebert and others glorifying guns. And it's repulsive, but it appeals to certain members of the cult. Members of the cult who say, we need a lot of guns to fight the government. And wow, that philosophy It needs to be repudiated. It's a big topic. You've been so generous with your time, Morgan Carroll. I thought I knew you well, but I've learned a lot more. And I understand why Colorado Democrats are kicking ass. But the war is not over. I don't want to call it a war. Uh, You know, the battle for democracy continues. Your fight continues. And I don't think this is a normal time. You are a historic figure at a very history-laden moment. Do you feel the weight of that Uh, and uh, give us some optimism and how we're going to get through this?
3: Yeah, I do feel the weight of it. I never thought I was going to be party chair, but I felt our democracy was in deep peril and I could not sit on the sidelines for this moment. This is bigger than Democratic or Republican parties to me. This is our country. This is our democracy and this is our place in the world. And I felt that weight. I came in um, after 2016, you know, after I lost the race against Mike Kaufman, and I thought that was going to be devastating. But Trump's election and the erosion of all the other checks and balances of our entire best system of government were clearly under a threat. And if we didn't have a growing, improving, strengthening Democratic Party that was willing to adapt Like parties can't stay stagnant. And so I felt like the place I could have the biggest impact was not just in me getting elected to one seat, but me being in a position to register voters, to retrain and recruit candidates across the entire state, to remind people that their vote matters, their voice matters, that this has a direct impact on people's lives. And because of that, we saw historic wins in the state in both 2018 and 2020, which is really showing and reminding the people how much power they really have in the state. And that after Dems are elected, they're not just elected, they're delivering. They're delivering and getting results done that are making a good and positive difference. and I could not be prouder. Well, to be I'm chair I'm, of the Colorado Dems.
1: Yeah, well, I'm optimistic. It, to me, it's a mismatch. If it was a fight, they would stop it. I'm talking about lawyers, who have cases. You're hearing from Morgan Carroll and her case for the Democratic Party and the face of the Republican Party, Christy Burton Brown, Jenna Ellis, and a few others. And I just wonder how you deal with media. I'm a part of the media with this podcast, but I used to have you on the radio. I wonder if you ever get invited onto radio anymore and whether you even feel it's worthwhile to go on Trump radio to make your case. Do they even invite you? And if they do, would you
3: accept? (laughs) I'm definitely not getting invitations. And I think... um, I probably would have better outlets of where, like I see us as having a communication role and an information sharing goal. So I don't really have an interest in being like somebody's poster child for the cult of who they wanna demonize because there's not gonna be listening. There's not gonna be conversation. There's not gonna be dialogue. I'm great with differences of opinion, but the culture has become toxic, bullying, and abusive to each other. The only thing that holds them in common is their vilification of just anything that is democratic at this point, not any positive vision of where they're going. So I prefer to spend time with legitimate media sources, whether it's neutral or left, but I want, you know, our role with the media is to share information, to let people know how to get involved, uh, to ha- We believe that if we share facts and the values of what we're standing for, that people will choose to continue to support Democratic candidates. And um, I think those other spaces have become so toxic as to be nonproductive.
1: And hopefully not that relevant. You are in the eye of the storm, Morgan Carroll. Fantastic to get back together with you. And Now we can actually start seeing people again. I hope I see you around. Tell everybody who shares our concerns just what they can do to make a difference. What would you advise? I mean, and and hopefully it's not just a party pitch, but broader than that.
3: Yeah. So a couple things that I would say, one, obviously register to vote. It's easy to do and to update in the state. Two, participate in government after elections happen, no matter the party of anyone that is there, whether that is local school board, county level, state legislative, your federal government. Democracy only works when people participate. They need to hear from you. Do not let someone convince you that this is a pointless exercise, whether they agree with you or not. They can't represent you if they don't hear from you. Citizens can create and introduce their own laws by working with their Elected officials. So get to know your elected officials, no matter what party they are. Know your power. Use your power because we co-govern in a democracy, and that should not be taken away from any of us. We should be participating in redistricting. We're about ready to have three public hearings in every one of the current, uh, in every one of the current uh, congressional districts, and then the legislative ones. Um, public input on. Deciding the boundaries for the next 10 years is really critical. And that's a way that people can participate and get involved. Um, not sharing disinformation um, you know, is really key. Small things we can do online uh, to make sure that the information we're putting out there is actually good, accurate, and vetted information. And then we all have a role to play in how we treat each other. It's not just our elected officials. It's the rest of us. Um, You know, there's such a thing as leading from the top, but there's also if the people lead, the the leaders will follow. And so we have, all of us, a responsibility to be and demonstrate the kind of people that we want our leaders to be. And we have a role on insisting that they be good, that they're not corrupt, that they don't put their personal interests above all of us. And finally, you can run for office. Uh, If you don't see what you like representing you at a different level of government and you are willing to work hard and put the interests of the public above your own interests, you should think about it. A lot of ways people can get involved and make a difference.
1: And I bet along that way, sometime you'll get a call from Morgan Carroll, probably a face-to-face, and she's going to size you up. Are you a smart, critical thinker? Can you advocate? I feel good. I understand why Colorado Democrats are kicking ass, because Morgan Carroll is running this show. You've been great Morgan. Stay strong. You are an important historic part of Colorado now, and I'm thrilled to know you.
3: As as well Craig, it is great catching up with you. Thank you for the invitation.
1: All right, bye now. Bye-bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
0: So By setting up your estate plan, you know what's gonna happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's gonna go, you know who's gonna get it. We've got everything in place, so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible, but then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody
0: the care
1: there are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money save yourself heartache some people die out of nowhere quickly but more often you get sick you have medical difficulties so it all goes together but your system works it works beautifully what is the best way to contact you these days
0: best way uh, you can give me a call my phone number is 720-394-6887 and again that's 720-394-6887 or you can go online to Michael Law michaeldailylawllc.com and there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use so either way is fine
1: thanks michael Troubadour Dave Gunders, this is a monumental special occasion. Happy
2: summer. Do you realize what this show is about? Hi, Craig. Always a pleasure. Not yet. Okay. You are so prolific, and we take it for granted, but this,
1: my friend, is our 50th produced show, which means
2: 50 Dave Gunders songs Mazel tov. Thank you, Craig, and mazel tov to you.
1: And technically, this is the end of our first year, because next week is going to be July 3rd, and as you recall, we started on the 4th of July, and there's a broad hint. Can you remember which
2: of your songs we started with? Might it have been the 4th of July? Yes, your <laughs>
1: brain is working, and my God, the special song you have for this week... I can't get it out of my head, and I kind of hate you for that. All day long I'm singing,
2: Tard and Feathered. <laughs> I should have gotten you to sing with me.
1: No, this is all you, baby, because you have a genre here that's all Dave Gunders, but you know what it is? Even though it's whimsical and fun, it's a reggae revenge song. You have a whole category called reggae revenge whimsical <laughs> to yourself
2: uh, I think we can we can describe it as that
1: all right, Tell everybody the inspiration for this song.
2: This song was born um one day when I was sitting on our on our back porch strumming my guitar as i often am my my daughter, this was two summers ago was had been hired as an intern, and uh the guy who hired her who's owned the company refused to respond to her as she got closer to the to her start date and never told her when to show up and she was very very frustrated um she had tried and emailed and called anyway so as a way this
1: this was an out-of-state job so she had to make plans she right well
2: it was in colorado but she had come back she had come back to colorado to to have the summer job she um, counted on this guy. She, yeah, she and counted on And then he ghosted him. her. He ghosted her, exactly that. And so in order to make her feel better, I just started riffing on the... And this song was born in five minutes.
1: With what idea?
2: With the idea of that that people like him who don't do what they what they promise should be tarred and feathered.
1: Wow. <laughs> Every week you come up with the perfect song because... Derek Chauvin just got sentenced to twenty-two and a half years, and the question is, what was the proper punishment? Back in the day in America, one possible punishment was tarred and feathered. Did you research that, or did it just pop into your head?
2: You know, I uh, it, it popped into my head. It, it was. It seemed like it was the punishment of the last of a couple centuries ago, uh, where someone was was basically shamed, publicly shamed, and driven out of town and tortured in a way. And Maybe, you know what, what were yeah, the physical repercussions? Well, that I would have to do a little research. I'm not sure yeah, how I'll hot the was. I'll tell you what it was. How hot the yeah, it was, was.
1: burns. Uh-oh. And blisters.
2: Uh yeah, well, that's it probably That's what you had to worry about. It probably served them right. Right. But
1: that's the punishment that you came up with.
2: I did. I, you know, I didn't want it to be that the that they should be, you know, they should be shot by firing squad. Or, or, or hung. I just think that uh, sometimes people need some uh, comeuppance.
1: This song is overall lighthearted. And you are whimsical, Dave, our troubadour. But something is kind of dark there because, hey, mister, if you're going to mess with my daughter, wow. Do you know what you're in for?
2: That's right. That, maybe a little bit of that of that dad protectiveness was coming out. All right, where did they get the feathers from? They got them from chickens. I'm not sure of that.
1: Because here's what I have researched. My minimal research is if you were in immediate need of tar, where would you get it back in the day, colonial days? You got me. Shipyards. Okay. Shipyards had ready tar. Okay, right. That makes sense. And, and where would you quickly get feathers?
2: Um, from seagulls.
1: I'll give you a hint. Mike Lindell. Now, maybe you're not watching enough news. My pillow. You'd open up a pillow, and there are feathers of whatever kind you used to make...
2: Duck and geese feathers.
1: Right. And we still have my bird pillows in front of you right there. But you are—you didn't make it any kind of feathers. What kind of feathers did you
2: specify? Well, it had to be chicken feathers, because the the image of someone being tar- feathered... Um, as, as something ridiculous and shaming was, was funny to me.
1: Now, I know another thing that was funny to you. My recommendation, I wrote a column in the Colorado Sun about Charles Grodin, the heartbreak kid. I made you watch that. And even on my airwaves, I think you were a little tough on Chucky Grodin, may rest in peace, and his performance in the heartbreak kid. But I implored you. I think, for months. I usually do what you say right away. But I said, watch Midnight Run and give Groden another consideration.
2: Did you do it? I did. And did it tickle your funny feathers? It did. And I have a, I have a higher esteem for Groden now. He did a terrific job at, uh, working right there alongside um, De Niro.
1: And it, it, don't you think he was a tremendous actor, unique? And that movie had a lot of comedy in it. I bet it made you laugh out loud with your daughter by your side. Yes. And yet there was pathos in there. Like when he interacted with his daughter, who De Niro did. And Grodin you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There were some heartfelt moments. That's kind of like your song.
2: There were heartfelt moments. And Grodin, he created a, a great role for himself in that, in that movie.
1: Everybody should watch that movie. And you agree thumbs up you're not just saying no
2: strong thumbs up
1: now speaking of up there what kind of a moon did we just have and you try to kind of gloat over me that you are a lunar expert but i said that's a strawberry moon rising and you questioned me we resolved it with siri but how about that moon and did i teach you something
2: you did strawberry moon was a new term for me and uh and you even explained what you you thought what, the, what the, uh, the genesis of that term was, it makes sense to me, the beginning of strawberry season.
1: Well, Wikipedia can teach you almost anything. Now, I tried to educate people with my column this week and I know you're aware of it because I read it to you and you were part of the formation when you might've been the guy who said, you know, Burger King, that old spot's got a bird call going in. Yeah, and, and I said, "What's a bird call?" I rode my bike over there, and then it—you gave you hatched my idea for a column, and I want to reward you. okay. And, and and see how it all fits together. Chicken sandwiches. What I did is I wrote a column about spicy chicken sandwiches. You had to be nearby. You had to have a drive-through. You had to sell me a sandwich and I ate them with no pickles, and the winner was?
2: Burger King.
1: Now you're stunned by the chicken coming out on top, right? I
2: am. I I was very surprised Burger King was even in the running.
1: And you're aware of my no pickle vow, and uh, will you eat pickles?
2: I do, but not around you, Craig. I know how your feeling of pickles is quite strong. It is. You're, you're, so I, yes.
1: I, I think that you respect me and that's part of my column, but you are like a garbage disposal. You will eat
2: anything. Am
1: I right? I pretty much
2: will eat anything. Yeah. As long as it's, you know, like I told you, as long as it's not rotten.
1: And when you go to a fast food, uh, do you get any kind of
2: special order? Most of it, I, most of the fast food these days, I avoid. But um, when I go, um, you know, I. I I'm I, saying back in the day
1: when okay. you were a teenager. Burger and
2: fries and a chocolate shake. Right, but you didn't have to say no pickles, no mustard. No, nah, I didn't no say drink. anything like no. I took it all. No, I wanted it. I wanted everything.
1: And when you ate a Whopper, I assume you ate Whoppers. Yes. Did you say hold anything? No, I, I would. Just... That has so much different garbage on it. You eat it all. Yes. Guess what I got for you, because it came free with the chicken, which I ordered no pickle, but honestly, this Whopper, it's first time in my life I've ordered a Whopper, but part of it is she got a free Whopper this month. I thought I was
2: going to get a Chiking.
1: I'm gonna give you half a chicken. <laughs> I'm gonna share my spices. Well, thanks okay for the whopper. The I'm
2: not looking a gift horse exactly. in the mouth, right. but it, I want—I want to try—I want to try this chicken you've All been right. talking here about. Here
1: it is. It. Here it is. Let me lay it out here. Skyler wants to taste, but he's not gonna get it. Right. Let's make sure there's no pickles. No. As specified, none. That's good. It's not as hot as the one I ate at the uh, Burger King uh, near my old Denver DA's office, Colfax and Kalamath, where uh, Colfax meets Spear. Wow. At this one, we live in the tech center area, and you know where I had to go to find the closest Burger King?
2: I was wondering about that myself.
1: No. I ended up going near the Arapahoe County Courthouse on Potomac and Arapahoe. Okay. Can I go for this? Yes, go right. for it. Mm. What do you say? Was that an mmm? Mm. And they give us your response.
2: Mm. It's a good chicken sandwich. Isn't that mm. good? Good good spice.
1: Chicken. And you know what I found out in my column is that it's owned by the same company, Restaurant Brands International. They have the, They have the best chicken. And so whether you go to Popeye's or Burger King, They have the same filet, which is wonderful. Sadly, there's been a little bit of a misorder here because when I said no pickles, sometimes they overreact and they leave off the lettuce, which they did here. But you get the idea. The filet is splendid, something you'd never expect from Burger King. I just want to say thanks to you, Dave Gunders, because I never thought you'd have enough music for a whole year, but you have and the word is, you've got plenty more. Tell there's a,
2: everybody. There's a new CD coming. You're making, me, you're, you're making me more prolific, Craig, because I have to come up with a new song for the next Craig Silverman show. And so it's keeping me writing. I have 17 new songs, which I'm putting together in a CD. I just mixed them all.
1: Oh, my gosh. I already know what we're going to use for next week. If it's all right, can I announce it? Go. Subject to change.
2: Mm-hmm. Fourth of July.
1: No, that would be a repeat. Yeah. But it's, it's the day though. I no, it's the third of July. Okay. But you're close. What do we need to do for this next year? What's the message of your next song? Um Set the Tone. Okay. We need to set the tone. Do you have a song for the new year? Chance called Set the Tone? I happen
2: to have a song called Set the Tone. You're talking with your mouth full. That chicken has some sweet fillet and it's, some spicy knife. It's rude, sauce. but I can't stop eating.
1: <laughs> anyway, thanks for being with us, troubadour Dave Gunders.
2: Thanks, Greg. Enjoy. Thanks eat for away my sandwich.
1: Take that Whopper home. All and, right. Uh, are you gonna eat it? You. Oh, won't. you're
2: darn right. I'll <laughs> never right. let a Whopper go to waste.
1: Oh my God! Don't open it in the studio. Thank you.
2: Just a summer job, you see But she counted on that She counted on you But you never get back What she's supposed to do you in tar, roll you in feathers, chicken feathers, you'll be running around, making clucking sounds, decking for seed in the hard, hard ground, take all your lies and leave us with the truth, see your brother chickens, they come and
0: Now back to
1: The Fred Silverman Show. So thanks for being a part of this. Listening to A Year of Podcasting, this episode I thought was wonderful. I learned a lot about Morgan Carroll and so did you. Our troubadour, I taught him about the strawberry moon and the chicken. And I hope you learned something too. You can always follow me on Twitter at Craig S. Colorado. Craig's Colorado. Yes, I think I own this state. Not all the states, just this state. It's cool to have big public officials like Morgan Carroll. It's good to have an audience anywhere you are listening to this podcast. Thank you, Troubadour. See you next week on our special Fourth of July anniversary show. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.